I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 23, and we'll look at verses 23 down through verse 35 this morning. The Apostle Paul is uh, still in Jerusalem. He was uh, captured by the Jewish establishment, the Jewish mob in the temple. He was uh, beaten. The commander of the Roman uh, troops that are there at uh, the fortress came down and rescued him. As they were taking him back into the barracks for his own safety and protection, so they were going up the stairs, Paul turned to the commander and asked permission to address the Jewish mob. The commander granted him that permission. He turned to them, began to, to uh, preach to them. And when he got to the point to where God's call on his life was to go to the Gentiles, they erupted again and were at the, they were at the, the, the point of mobbing him and putting him to death. At that point, the commander rushed him inside the barracks for his own protection and ordered him to be flogged to try to get to the bottom of what was going on. It was at that point that Paul said to the guys who are about to flog him, is it lawful for you to scourge a Roman citizen who has not been found guilty? And that shocked them. That was illegal to do that. So they take the message back to the commander. This is a Roman citizen. He says, well then, obviously don't flog him. So they took him down the next morning to the Sanhedrin for another so-called trial. The commander wanted to try to understand why all the ruckus? Why were they beating this man? And of course, at that point, uh, Paul began to speak to them, but Soon there was a riot broke out as he identified himself with the Pharisees and not the Sadducees based on their view of the resurrection and other things. And so the Roman commander had to take him back into the barracks again for his own protection because the Jews, the Sanhedrin at that time were ready to tear him apart, the Scriptures say. Once he's in there, Paul's nephew finds out that now there's a group of over 40 Jewish assassins that want to go take Paul out and they've gone to the Sanhedrin and say, ask for another meeting, ask for another uh, hearing with the apostle and as the Romans bring him in again, then we will attack them and kill him dead. And so Paul's nephew who overheard the plot goes to the commander. He actually, actually goes to Paul, tells Paul the plot the assassination plot on his life. He tells the uh, centurion who tells the commander. And so now they're about ready to, to, during the middle of the night, to whisk Paul out of Jerusalem and take him down to Caesarea. So that's kind of where we're at. So in Acts chapter 23, we'll pick it up here, starting in verse 23, and I'll read down through verse 35. And again, what a great joy and blessing it is to read the inspired Word of God given to us every word by the Spirit for our benefit, our blessing, our edification, for His glory and honor. Verse 23. 
And he, being the commander, called to him two of the centurions and said, Get two hundred soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form. Claudius Lysias. Now that's the name of the commander. This is where he now identifies himself. Now we know his name. The commander's name is Claudius Lysias. To the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once also, instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. When these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when he had read it, he asked from what province he was. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing about your, after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, so Paul is in Roman custody, and yet Paul is exactly where God wants him to be. We oftentimes don't like our prison seasons. We don't like our trials. But this is where God has ordained uh, the Apostle Paul. It's for his good and it's for God's glory. This is where he's at. So we find in verse 23 and 24 that the commander, now hearing of this plot, this assassination plot of 40, over 40 of these Jews that want to kill the Apostle Paul and assassinate him as he's being brought to a so-called meeting that the council is in cahoots with them. They're co-conspirators with these 40 assassins. And so they want to kill him and take him out. But uh, what we learn from this whole episode in general is that the Roman government is exonerating Paul of anything criminal from their law, from their legal perspective. And this may be one of the main values of this whole passage. Uh, we see this also earlier in Gallio and Corinth, the town clerk in Ephesus, and the commander and others appear to, to see that Paul and Christianity is no threat to them at this point in time. Now that will change later, particularly under Nero. That's going to change big time and a horrific persecution will come from the Roman government. But not yet. 
they were basically defending him. And now that he's, they know he's a Roman citizen, they are obligated that he gets a fair trial. Now, this is not to say that we look to government for our protection for everything, because government can be fickle. We are to look to the Lord, right? Who made the heaven and earth. He is the one ultimately who protects His church. But having said that, God ordained that one of the main functions of civil government is to protect their citizens. They don't always do that, but this is one of the charges that God, who established government, that's one of the institutions that God Himself ordained, that Scripture has a lot to say about righteous government and wicked government, that's throughout the Bible, that nevertheless, one of the main functions of good government is to protect its citizens. We see this uh, obviously in verse 23 and 24, where now the commander uh, orders for two centurions to get 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. We're not totally sure what the word spearmen means, There's some debate on the meaning of that. But altogether, 470 people, soldiers, trained soldiers, to protect this one man against 40 assassins, maybe a few more. And again, as I mentioned last time, that's 12 times the number of the assassins you find just to protect this one Roman citizen. And I think there are times we need to meet force with greater force. That when our government comes up against those who would violate the law or those who would promote chaos and violence within the society, that they should meet force with force. They should suppress that. That's part of what government should do. Here they bring out their big guns. These would be kind of like the armored tanks of their day. The the cavalry. The armed men, the spearmen, or whatever these other guys were. It was a well-armed army to protect and if necessary fight against the Jewish terrorists, the assassins who were trying to kill Paul. Now obviously I can't read this without thinking again about our own cultural situation in America. There are those in our country that are threatening violence. They've been doing violence. They're threatening more violence within our own culture. Uh, they have recently been saying if President Trump replaces Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court, then they will burn down our system of government. That's what people are saying within our own country. Of course, now we know that he's nominated Judge and Professor Amy Coney Barrett to be on the Supreme Court. And if he and he, if he gets her on the court before the election or even after the election, you can expect in a lot of the cities of our country there will be chaos, there will be violence, there will be an attempt to overthrow uh, local governments. If violence and rioting break out, the government is responsible to quell it and protect its citizens. That's what the government is supposed to do. That's why we have police force. That's why we have armies, we protect our government. We protect its citizens. That's what the government should do. With all of this, and again, you're all, you've all are well aware of this, there's an underlying Marxist revolution going on within our nation that is certainly 
uh, stirring up a lot of this chaos that's going on. And by the threats of burning down our system, what are they trying to do? They're trying to intimidate the population to scare up the people into submission. Well, we don't want our, our neighborhoods to be attacked by all the violence and the, the mobs coming down our streets, so we'll just give in to what they want. And that would be the worst thing that we can do. The government should be responsible to protect us. And this Marxist revolution is using fear tactics, the threat of more violence to try to bully us into submission. And this is no time to be intimidated by their threats or to think that if we give in to them, the things are going to be better. The Romans understood this. When there was a threat of violence to break out, you've got to deal with it and deal with it with... with, uh, Superior force. That's what they're doing in protecting one citizen from an assassination attempt. We can only hope and pray that our governments would fulfill the same responsibility. The army government is to keep law and order. And uh, again, in a lot of our cities, that's not taking place. But there's anarchy And if this continues on, if the government does not stand up and do its God-ordained responsible function of protecting its citizens, then the great experiment of America, the great constitutional republic that we've been given, which preserves our liberty and our freedom, will fall into the gutter of human history. When I look at this scene, I just think of uh, just the application particularly in the cities today where there's so much violence going on. Louisville, Kentucky, my goodness. Portland, Seattle, New York. Minneapolis finally called for the federal troops and were able to get it under control. But no community can flourish if it doesn't feel safe. And again, I'm just emphasizing, you may say I'm beating a dead horse. Sometimes dead horses need to be beaten. I don't know why. But... Obviously, we have issues in our culture. We have the racism, problems, bad apples among the police. All that can be addressed peacefully, wisely, without trying to bring in all this rioting. Those issues should be addressed. Better training, things like that. But to allow this Marxist revolution to continue to stir up and to intimidate and destroy businesses and destroy homes and attack people and even kill people and shoot our police, that is insane. The government must step in and do their responsibility. So I'm thankful that uh, Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida has just uh, recently come out with an anti-riot bill which creates new criminal offenses and increases penalties for those who target police enforcement. I mean, deal with the bad policemen. If they're out there, they need to be trained. They need to be, the bad ones need to be taken off. But you don't in any way undermine the police force. Cities that defund their police will result in state grants and, and uh, state aid being pulled. I think that's good what DeSantis has done. He even said if rioters, if you're driving down a street and rioters surround your car 
and they try to intimidate you or they try to break into your car and to get away, you run over a few of them, well, that's tough luck for them. And I think that's, that's good. I mean, I hate to say that, but I mean, this is, that violence needs to be under control. If government doesn't do that, no one feels safe and the culture cannot flourish if there is that kind of fear going on. Well, the irony in all this is that the, uh, the Jewish government totally failed in this regard. The Jewish authorities wanted Paul dead without a trial. The Roman authorities are generally protecting Paul at this point in time. But it's like uh, John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 11, that Christ came to His own and those who were His own did not receive Him and they don't receive His his apostles either. So the irony is, Paul was proclaiming to the Jewish people their Messiah, but they rejected that, and their response was just kill him. Whatever it takes, kill him. And it was the Roman government, with the common grace of God, that was standing up to protect one of their citizens. So Paul's safety was paramount in the commander's mind due to the mob violence. He still didn't understand what the deal was. So he's going to send him to Felix, his superior, who's a governor over the Judea providence of Rome. He's going to send him to Felix along with a a letter of explanation. In verse uh, 24, we're told that... uh, They would also put Paul on a horse. They'd provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, uh, the governor. Now Felix, uh, just a word about him, he was the supreme ruler in all the civil affairs of the Jews. So that ultimately, if there was a big issue, legal case or whatever, then Felix, the governor, whoever that would be, here it's Felix, would be the supreme ruler in all civil affairs within the nation of Israel. Felix, here mentioned in verse 24, again, the governor of the Roman province of Judea from A.D. 52 to 59. So he was seven or eight years in this position. He was actually born a slave and was freed later by Antonia, the mother of Emperor Claudius. His brother Paulus was also a freed slave, and uh, his brother became good friends with Emperor Claudius and later with Nero. But Paulus, his brother, helped him to get this position as a governor of the uh, of Judea, the province of Judea. The, uh, the scuttle on him is that as a former slave, he never really outgrew a slave's mentality. Tacitus, the Roman historian, summarized Felix's career by saying he ruled as a tyrant with the spirit of a slave, plunging into all manner of cruelty and lust. End quote. So while Felix was on basically the throne, if you will, or or he was the governor. He ruled like a king with the instincts of a slave. 
He, his rule was ruthless in quelling Jewish uprisings. He wasn't popular among the Jews. He had no hesitation to kill anyone or everyone who opposed him. And sometimes he brutally went in and uh, slaughtered Jews when there was any kind of an uprising. He was an opportunist without a conscience. His ambitions were to gain power and to accumulate more wealth. For example, he used the high priest Jonathan at that point in time to get to help get the appointment as governor. And then later had that high priest assassinated. So much for loyalty. He hired ruffians to do his dirty work and then prosecuted them to vindicate himself. This is Felix. He took bribes in issuing legal decisions. Matter of fact, if you look at chapter 24, Acts 24, verse 26, you see that uh, speaking of Felix, that at the same time too, Acts 24, verse 26, he, Felix, was hoping that money would be given by him. Therefore, he used to send for him quite often and converse with him. Felix was trying to milk money and bribes out of Paul during the time that he was there in Caesarea. So this is his character. His love of money was uh, very obvious. He was trying to use Paul to again line his own pockets. So this is the man that he's being brought to who's going to hear his case. Starting in verse 25... Luke, the author of the book of Acts, gives us a rendition of the letter that the commander sends to Felix. Now, it was Roman law that if a subordinate officer sends a prisoner to his superior officer, he must send along a written statement of the case. That was in Roman law. So that's what he's doing here. The commander has is sending Paul to Felix in Caesarea and he's including a letter which he must to describe what's going on. So we begin in verse 26. He identifies himself, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. So he starts out complimenting the governor, refers to him as the most excellent Governor Felix, we would say today to the honorable mayor or whoever it might be. Uh, So he's using appropriate language to speak to his superior. He also acknowledges that uh, he has certain restrictions on his own authority and that's why he's turning him over to Felix. If you drop down to verse 30, he says, when I was informed that there would be a plot against him, I sent him to you at once also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the commander is basically saying, you know, this is above my pay grade now. I tried my best to deal with it. Now it's in your hands. So he's passing the buck to Lysias, to to Felix. But embedded within this letter, we find that there are two serious distortions that are here. And this is going to give us a picture of man's depraved human nature. Uh, let's, let's look at this. In verse 27, notice what he writes. 
When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. So you notice what he's saying? Well, I knew he was a Roman, and that's why I went down and rescued him. Because he was a Roman. I knew all that. I was fulfilling my responsibility as a good Roman commander. And that was absolutely a lie. He didn't find out that Paul was a Roman citizen until after he had given the speech on the stairwell, taken in the barracks, and he ordered for Paul to be flogged. And then Paul identified the fact that he was a Roman citizen, and that's when the commander learned about it. So basically, he's distorting the facts. He's trying to put a feather in his own cap. And in reality, he didn't learn about Paul's citizenship until after he had ordered Paul to be flogged, which was a violation. You cannot flog a Roman citizen without a trial. So he lied to Felix to protect his reputation, his honor, his job, and his neck. So you see that clearly in this whole episode. He's not being, he's not telling the whole truth here. And then secondly, he conveniently omits the whole mention of the serious offense, the blunder that he was guilty of in ordering Paul, a Roman citizen, to be flogged, which was a violation of the law. He very conveniently omits even mentioning that. That he had ordered Paul to be bound and tortured or flogged because he wasn't even aware he was a Roman citizen. So he, he did not take care of due diligence before he ordered Paul to be flogged. He doesn't even mention that. So his account of what happened is decidedly self-centered and self-serving. Claudius was distorting the facts to make himself look good. And it's just, see how easy... And natural it is for the commander to twist those facts about Paul's Roman citizenship, to hide the incriminating evidence about his own plans to flog a Roman citizen without trial. Of course, he didn't even know at that point. But how selfish motives oftentimes tempt us to preserve our own self-righteousness before others. Now, the commander is great on blaming the Jews for their crimes of trying to execute Paul, then trying to this assassination plot. Oh yeah, he sees the sin and the evil of the Jews. He points that out clearly, but he exonerates himself of his own blunders and distorts the facts to present himself in a better light. He makes himself a hero when he really wasn't that great of a hero. And what we see in this letter, and as I've been reading over this, you know, I've been asking, Lord, you've, you've included this letter in here for a reason. I mean, there's only two letters here, this one and the one written in Acts 15. And it's interesting, but why did you include it in there? And I think one of the reasons is to expose to us just how naturally we lie. How naturally we distort the facts. 
to save face. And it's really a good example of depravity of the human heart. Now we can see this clearly in Him. We can see it clearly in others. It's a bit harder to see it when we're the ones doing it, isn't it? We all still have that principle of sin within us to where we can be tempted to promote our own self-righteousness or desire to make ourselves look good in the eyes of others to look righteous or in our own eyes. And we can distort the facts. We can hide and suppress and bury our sins and our faults so that we present ourselves in a false righteous light. Pharisees excelled in this, but it's a poisonous root that can still grow in the believer's heart. It can grow in your heart, my heart. Now, regeneration prunes away a lot of this by the grace of God, but the sin nature is still there in the hearts of even believers so that we are tempted to blame others and justify ourselves. We can blame the Jews as the commander did, clearly see their faults and yet cover up our own. We can cover up the truth. We can twist the facts in such a way that we come out smelling like a rose and the others smell like garbage. Sometimes that happens in our homes, in our marriages. Difference of opinion, there's a problem going on and boy, we see the other the other person's faults clearly. We just don't see ours very well. You can see it in a family and parenting and things like that. It can be a temptation. You can see it in our homes at times. You can see it at work where we promote ourselves and we criticize the work of other people and, and applaud our accomplishments so that hopefully we'll get that promotion or we'll climb up the corporate ladder on the backs of others. We can do it in other relationships as well. When we focus and fixate on their faults, all the while we preen the feathers of our own self-righteousness and polish our crowns of innocence. See, this is a sin nature. We see clearly in the commander. But beware, it lives in us as well. The temptation is there in us. You see, by nature, we all have a black belt in self-defense. We're all very good at defending ourselves. Oh, they're to blame. Not me. It's their fault. Not mine. We're experts in jujitsu, karate, whatever it is in the spiritual domain where we are protecting ourselves. And that's a part of that remnant of sin that still abides in our hearts. The commander is protecting himself. He's protecting his position. He's protecting his image. He's protecting his job. So he's only presenting himself in the good light. The Jews are all, look at what they did. Yeah, they looked at all that, their fault, their blame, their sin. As for me, I did everything right. I mean, I found out he was a Roman citizen. So I went down there and I rescued him. So he distorted those facts. And then he totally omits what he did wrong. The blunder of almost 
flogging a Roman citizen because he didn't take the time to investigate the matter any more than he did. And sometimes we can do the same thing. Sometimes we can distort the facts, hide our faults, consciously and deliberately, which is probably what was true of Claudius Lysias, the commander. He distorted the facts and hid his own faults consciously and deliberately to deceive. This would be similar to what Ananias did back in Acts 5. When Peter had to confront him. Remember what Ananias did? Well, we sold the land for you know, $50,000. We're giving it all to the, to the apostles, to the church. He really sold it for eighty or a hundred, But he lied about it. Consciously and deliberately to deceive Peter. Peter confronted him saying, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? In other words, Ananias in Acts 5 was trying to feather his cap by promoting his own generosity and deceiving Peter by hiding his, his deception of the sales price to make himself look good in the eyes of the church. I wonder how he justified it to himself. But his ego wanted praise from other people. And so he distorted the facts. And he did it consciously and deliberately. Sometimes we're tempted to do that. But probably a lot of the times we're just tempted to distort the facts and hide our faults when we're not even aware that we're doing it. We do it unconsciously and not deliberately. You see, it's so easy for us to see the faults of others but to defend our own righteousness, not that we're totally righteous, but because we have blind spots from our own sin nature that wants to promote our innocence and our self-righteousness to make us the hero, to make us the, the victim, to make us the exonerated righteous one. That's kind of what is going on in this passage. But sometimes we can do it unconsciously And not deliberately because of those blind spots. We're not even aware when we cover over our crimes and promote our own goodness because we're so fixated upon their faults that we become blind to our own faults. That's why Jeremiah had to tell us in chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it that these temptations come our way? Now the Pharisee is kind of guilty of doing this unconsciously and not even necessarily deliberately. I think he's just so blind. They had this self-righteous mentality. The Pharisee could easily see the sins of other people, but they couldn't see their own sins. Remember in Luke chapter 18, verse 11, when Jesus told the story about the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank You that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector over here. For I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. 
He saw clearly the sins of other people totally blind to his own sin. And he gloried in his own outward righteous stuff, the little tithing things that he did, and was totally blind to the depths of his own self-righteous heart. This is a temptation, I think, for us. Where am I? Oh my goodness. Um, <clears throat> let me, uh, can you put up the, the one on Matthew 7? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Because this issue of having this attitude that the commander had in writing this letter where he distorts the facts about what actually happened to promote his own goodness, and then he totally suppresses the negative stuff about himself to again promote his own righteousness, that this is something that we all wrestle with, and that's why the Lord in Matthew chapter 7 had to deal with this on a gut level with his own disciples. So he said to them, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Now obviously, this is not a categorical prohibition of judgment because the Bible says we are to judge. The church discipline, there's other aspects to it. But in this context, look at what he's emphasizing. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What's Christ dealing with here? He's dealing with the same hard attitude that the commander had in distorting the facts and covering over his own sin, his own blunders. And he's dealing with his disciples. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like these people. Don't go out and judge like the Pharisees judge. That's his point. Don't go out and judge like the hypocrite does because by your standard of judgment, you will be judged. And he says, why do you look at the speck in the other person's eye and you don't realize there's a, there's a telephone pole sticking out of your face. He says, first you need to deal with your own blindness. That telephone pole is sticking in your eye. How are you going to see anything clearly? Deal with your own sin first and then go and take the little speck out of the other person's eye. And why did He make such a point out of this? Because it's a problem. Because it's our sin nature. To be a hypocrite. And what hypocrites need to do, which we all suffer from to a certain level, is first humbly, honestly deal with our own sin first. And ask God to show us those blind spots, those hidden sins that we, that we cradle so gently and softly their own chest. Take the log out of your eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
I think what Jesus is basically saying is a generalized warning that if you're judging someone, chances are pretty strong you've got a log in your eye. You've got a railroad tie poking out of your face and you don't even see it. You don't even know it. Because our sin nature is so proud that we still wrestle with, even with believers, that I immediately go on the defense. When someone points out a sin or a fault in my life, I immediately defend myself. The old black belt in self-defense. And I think what he's saying is that if you're judging anybody, you need to first stop and examine your own eyes and take the beam out before you try to deal with the imperfection, the tiny little imperfection in their vision. This is one of the things I think that the Spirit of God has for us in this letter. is to see very clearly in an unbeliever how his own sin nature can distort the facts, cover over his own blunders to make him appear like he's a hero, that he's the innocent one, that he's the righteous one. And I think we need to learn from an unbeliever because the seed of that pride and self-righteousness still grows within us. What the Lord wants of us is is a humble heart. And true godliness humbly sees our own sins and faults and doesn't deny them, but we take them to the cross of Christ and we repent of them and we confess them when we need to. So that we should always start by examining our own hearts and come expecting to find a beam there and ask the Lord to show it to us. We need to be like the tax collector in that parable again in Luke 18. The tax collector, contrary to the Pharisee who was so glad he wasn't like all those bad sinners. And look at all the good things he did. All the tithing he did. The, The tax collector was not anything like that Pharisee. But rather he stood off at a distance and was unwilling to even lift his eyes to heaven but beating his breast was saying, oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. To me, the sinner. And that's the humble heart we need to have. I think what the commander does and focusing all the evil on the Jews, totally whitewashing his own sin is something that I think we see in this passage And we should stop and pause and say, Oh God, how about me? Lord, in what ways do I need to repent of my own self-righteous, stinking sin? And instead of blaming everybody else, own up to my own sin and repent and to go forth in humility. The commander covered his faults falsely promoted His righteousness. And we need to be aware of the temptation to do the same. Well, very quickly, Paul is is, uh, escorted to Caesarea. If you'll go back to the very first slide on Paul's journey to Caesarea. So we read now in verse 31-35. through 
Verse 31, So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. Antipatris is about 40 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's about halfway to Caesarea. They get there probably sometime the next day. They're on horseback, soldiers. And then at that point, all the soldiers come back to Jerusalem. All the horse riders, the the, the soldiers on horses and Paul will go on about another 25 miles to Caesarea. At this point, uh, we find, uh, let me see here. This is Caesarea. This is a, a view of what it looks like now. This was uh, Herod's palace right there on that little peninsula, now called Herod's Praetorium in verse 35. And uh, there was inside that Praetorium, when Herod built his palace there, which the Roman governors eventually confiscated, and that's where they lived in, there was a swimming pool on the inside of it that was as big as an Olympic swimming pool. And this is the remnant of it, that you can still see part of the pool there. This is what it may have looked like back in the first century. The uh, outer part of it. This is where Felix would have lived. There's a swimming pool in the middle of it. This is the part, this is probably where guests would stay, where some of the, some of the uh, guard would have stayed there. And apparently somewhere in this area is where Paul was going to stay. Because it says in verse 35, that uh, Felix gave orders for Paul to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So he's, he's probably here. Now as a Roman citizen, he hasn't been found guilty of anything yet. So he's, they're probably not going to stick him away in some dark dungeon prison cell. So he's probably treated fairly well here at this point. There's an overall view of uh, Caesarea. Tremendous harbor here. Here's the... Uh, the palace, there's a theater, there's a hippodrome where they did horse races, there's another amphitheater over here. So quite a, quite a pro- prominent city where the governor has his, his headquarters. Uh, the governor asked where he's from, he says Cilicia, but that's so far away, it'd be a hardship for the Jews to go all the way up there to bring their accusations against. So Felix decides that it's appropriate for him to try the case here in Caesarea. He doesn't want to bother the, the uh, governor of Syria because the governor of Syria has a lot of power. It's a bigger area. He has more power and authority. And he was actually the one that helped to remove the previous governor of Judea. So Felix doesn't want to send him a trivial case that might upset him. So he's going to try it there in Caesarea. So Lord willing, next time we'll uh, pick it up uh, from here as we uh, follow the providence of God and Paul uh, being held in custody by the Roman government. By the way, in bringing him here to Caesarea, the Lord is fulfilling part of His original uh, charge for the Apostle Paul. Because when God saved Paul in Acts 9, He says to another Ananias, a believer, go for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So he's going to stand before 
governors and King Agrippa. So that prophecy is going to be fulfilled while he's at Caesarea and other places as well. So in conclusion, government's chief role is to protect its citizens. We as citizens need to encourage and promote that for our own safety because that's what God has ordained government to do is to protect its citizens. But secondly, we've also seen in the letter from uh, Claudius Lysias, the commander, uh, an insight into human nature that often distorts the facts to promote our own righteousness so that we need to be aware of that and seek the grace of God in our own relationships that we might walk humbly before God and before our fellow man and beware of the logs that are sticking out of our own eye. So may God help us to do that. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do uh, thank You, Lord, for this uh, passage of Scripture that uh, helps us to understand not only the important role of government, but just also the darkness of the human heart. And Lord, we, we thank You that through the saving grace of Jesus Christ, we are no longer slaves to our sin. We're no longer in bondage to our sin. We're no longer a, a total captive to our sins. That You have regenerated us and changed us. And we do praise You for that. But Lord, we still wrestle with these things. And there are times when our own sin and our own self-righteousness manifests itself. And so Lord, we pray that You would help us to be sensitive to that and give us humble hearts that we might live and serve You in a way that, that pleases You. Lord, we know that You're opposed to the proud, but You give grace to the humble. So Lord, give us humble hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.